I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, February 13th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show... Jackson senators hope a House bill aimed at creating a special court district in the capital city is met with resistance in their chamber. Then doctors are planning to team up with churches in the Gulf South to bring medical care to people who need it most. Plus, the latest season of White Lies examines what happened to a prison in Talladega when Muriel Cubans take over. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB. Think Radio. Democrats in the Mississippi Senate hope they can provide some resistance to a bill that passed the House last week. HB 1020 would create an inferior court system in a section of Jackson known as the Capitol Complex Improvement District. Cases would be taken up by appointed judges and prosecutors. The bill's Republican authors claim it will help clear a backlog of cases in the Hines County courts. But Jackson delegates in the Senate say it's bad legislation. Democrat David Blunt of Jackson tells our Kobe Vance this bill and other measures to reduce the autonomy of Jackson and its residents only creates more tension. Uh, We need to take the temperature down uh, and listen to each other that we've got to have a partnership between the city and the state. Uh, And those of us who live in Jackson, those of us who are Democrats and the Republican leadership of the legislature, uh, we've got to improve this relationship. It's become uh, become very strained, uh, and that's not in the interest of of anybody. So uh, we need to turn that around. 1020, uh, House Bill 1020 passed this week in the the House. Wanted to get your thoughts on... What could be done to address that legislation in the Senate? Um, could it be made something that can be accommodate Jacksonians, or do you think it's just a broken legislation that can't be something the city can can live with? Uh, that bill cannot be fixed. Uh, there are issues where I believe we can find common ground. There are issues uh, where we can compromise and work together. But the notion of an unelected judiciary appointed by people who don't live here, made up of people who don't live here, with prosecutors who are appointed that don't live here, that should be objectionable to every Mississippian. Every Mississippian has the constitutional right to elect his or her judges, 
and to elect his or her prosecutors. That's a right every Mississippian has, and that's a right the people in Hines County deserve, just like the people in every other county in the state. Uh, that legislation is ill-conceived, fatally flawed, uh, and, and we cannot support it. Lastly, I want to talk about some of the water bills we've seen. You know, in the Senate, y'all took up that one bill uh, that would have to do with the state taking over the water system in Jackson. Do you think this? What do you think the future of these conversations are going to look like? Everybody knows that the federal court and the federal court-appointed administrator is in charge of the water system and is going to be for some time. The federal government uh, has put up the money, and the federal judge has appointed somebody to run the system, and that. There's lots of work that needs to be done, and we just need to let this person do his job. Uh, all of this is premature, uh, and I believe it's going to get better thanks to the, the money that has been sent here by the president and the Congress, uh, and we've got a proven person running the system now. Uh, he doesn't answer to any politician, uh, and we just need to let this man do his job. Uh, all of this is premature and unnecessary at this point. The city's delegation acknowledges there are problems that need solving. Democrat Sally Norwood, also of Jackson, says those solutions should come through cooperation. It's disheartening, uh, but I'll be the first to admit that you know we have some challenges here in the city, but those challenges might going to be uh, resolved um, by us attacking one another. Uh, those challenges are going to be resolved by us working together, the city, the county, and the state. Uh, that's you know, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad the week is done, but I'm not I'm not proud of the legislation that we passed. The House has passed out House Bill 1020, uh, which we had spoken about before, but wanted to get your thoughts as the Senate prepares to take up this kind of legislation, going through committee and then potentially into the chamber. It's something that, uh, I mean, there again, um, you know, we're rolling back the clock, we're rolling back time, we're rolling back uh, rights and privileges, and that's not good uh, anytime. My hope is that um, during this break we have as, as a cool-off session and that we can come together and work on the meaningful legislation that would address the challenges that we've seen uh, in 1020 and uh, 2889, that we can, that we can, you know, take this as cool off here. We can get together. That the authors of the legislation sit down with the persons, uh, the, the, the colleagues in the House and the Senate that reside in the city of Jackson, and we have meaningful discussions about how we can uh, dissolve, uh, I mean, reduce crime and. Uh, uh, work with this water uh, infrastructure issue, and we can move forward together because we're not down here to fight one another. We're down here to do what's create good public policy and do what's best for our state. How do you think this could affect Mississippians if this were, if 1020 were to go through as it currently stands? Well, it's a bad precedent, first of all, and I don't think that it's, I don't think constitutionally it would, it would hold up, but it's, it's a bad precedent even to uh, introduce uh, you know, such legislation, because at the end of the day, you know, uh, that's not who we are. That's not what we should be about. You know, I, again, I said we have challenges, but this is not the way 
to address it, taking away individual rights and privileges. Uh, you know, one man, one vote. If we want change, let's vote the change in. But right now, you know, Jackson, Hans County, it is what it is, and we just need to come together. And uh, if we say we love Hans County, if we say we want to do uh, what's best and right, let's come together and have a meeting for discussion and come up with solutions uh, to the challenges that we have. So, I mean, you have Jackson, Hans County, you have many, many good people living in this city, black, white, Democrat, Republican, and otherwise. So let's not just cast uh, uh, the city aside. Let's come together, meaningful discussions, and let's work to uh, address those issues. Senator Sally Norwood of Jackson. The deadline for House Bill 1020 to clear its Senate committee is February 28th. Coming up, doctors are planning to team up with churches in the Gulf South to bring medical care directly to people who need it most. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Heart disease, high blood pressure, and hypertension. These health issues are not only prominent in the Gulf South, but often affect black communities more. That's why some doctors are teaming up with churches to bring medical interventions directly to people who need it the most. Gulf States Newsroom's health reporter, Shalina Chatlani, goes to a church where community members are spreading the gospel on how to stay healthy. It's daily mass at St. Joseph the Worker Church in Marrera, Louisiana, just outside of New Orleans. Louisiana, alongside its neighbors, Alabama and Mississippi, have some of the highest rates of heart disease in the nation. And black residents are more likely than white residents to experience high blood pressure. At this predominantly black church, Parishioners are aware of the statistics because a lot of people here have either experienced a health condition like hypertension themselves or know someone who has. Except we pray this sacrifice from your faithful servants. When people stood up for prayer requests, nearly all of them were about a child who was sick or a friend in the hospital. So many aren't just attending church functions to be well spiritually, but also to be well physically. I remember growing up as a little girl going to the boucheries where they um, actually shot the hog in the head and uh, they made blood sausage and and they fried everything, cracklings, chicken. That's Octavia Fennedy, a longtime member of St. Joseph. And I know a lot of people in the community still do that, but it's not really healthy for us. Fennedy is a member of the church's health ministry, which has been around for a few decades. The goal is to teach the community how to be healthier. 
Venity, who has diabetes and has survived cancer twice, knows how difficult it can be to go to the doctor. There's often judgment, a lack of cultural sensitivity, and racism in the medical field. I feel like they don't take, the doctor does not take as much time with me as they do with a, maybe a Caucasian patient. Um, so I don't feel like I get the right treatment, so why go? There are also practical issues, like lack of insurance. Am I going to get the medicine or am I going to buy my groceries? I have to eat. So that's where we see a lot of the disparities coming. These opinions are shared by many. So the health ministry has sought to ease those concerns. They have health fairs where they invite nurses to do routine checkups and educators to come and speak on topics like exercise and diet. And this safe space has worked. People here have caught issues like kidney disease by participating in these programs. That's why Tulane University doctors and public health researchers are launching a study to team up with churches like St. Joseph. Dr. Keith C. Ferdinand is a cardiologist and co-lead on Tulane's CHERISH program, which will place community health workers and nurses directly in about four dozen churches across the greater New Orleans area to treat hypertension and reduce risk of heart disease within black communities. So for many years, we have seen that clinical community linkages taking an academic center and linking it with the community site have some benefit. Probably one of the best shown examples was in Los Angeles. It's called the Los Angeles Barbershop Study. The Barbershop Study's results were published in 2018. It placed pharmacists within dozens of salons and created a safe space for black men to monitor their blood pressure and get prescription medicine. And the result was that the majority of participants were able to significantly lower their blood pressure after talking to their barbers. Ferdinand says communities of color need alternatives to the hospital. Tulane believes churches are one way to close the gap, especially in the South. The solution is to treat everyone regardless of race, ethnicity, sex, gender, socioeconomic status, or geography, but we're not there. So if you can see patients in a comfortable community-based environment, that may be superior to having the patient come into the hospital clinic for services. Back at St. Joseph, Father Sidney Speaks agrees this is a great place to monitor health. So why the place of the church? Because it's always been a major center, a center of community life, a center of the life of the person, the center of the family. This kind of outreach has been successful in the past. St. Joseph has been the site of vaccination campaigns during the COVID-19 pandemic. You're already at a place that is pushing you to be better. So it kind of makes sense. If I'm coming to church where I'm going to be spiritually made well, well, then that will be a place where I could be made well uh, physically. Speak says he's excited at the prospect of having a dedicated team of researchers and community health workers focusing on his parishioners later this year. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Shalina Chutlani. The Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public media stations in Alabama and Louisiana. Coming up, the latest season of White Lies examines what happened to a prison in Talladega when Mario Cubans take over. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks to our sustaining members who provide ongoing monthly financial support. You can become a sustainer, too. Go to mpbonline.org and click Donate Now at the top of the page. 
Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. NPR's podcast, White Lies, debuts their second season about Mariel Cubans who take over a prison in Talladega. One of the hosts of the show, Chip Bradley, discovered this historic event by finding a picture of men standing on the roof of a prison asking for help while digging through some archives. From our partners at WBHM in Alabama, Cody Short sat down with Brantley to find out more. So, Chip, take me back to you finding this picture. How did you find it, and what did you think when you first saw it? Yeah, so we were... So Andy and I both teach at the University of Alabama, and for another class, we were looking through the photo archives of the Birmingham News, which came across these packets of negatives that said Cubans take over federal prison in Talladega. One said exporting Cuban. There's a little code on the top right corner that just has the year. The year, it was 1991, and I'm an old person. I graduated high school in 1991, and I had no memory of it. Um, Well, first of all, I didn't know what the photos were. So we scanned them, started looking through them. Like a lot of things, there's no, you know, a a prison takeover like this. Unless you're on the inside, there's not a whole lot to see until there is. But among these photos were these men on the roof, and they had these homemade signs that you could make out. One said, pray for us. One said, uh, please, media, justice, freedom, or death. It very quickly was revealed to us that like this was a much bigger story than just a prison takeover. Mm. And in the first episode, you cover what happens. But, I mean, tell me what happened in Talladega, Alabama in 1991. In 1991, there were 120 men from Cuba who were being detained there at the prison. And Talladega, the federal prison in Talladega, was basically the last stop for these men, many of whom had been detained for years in federal prisons as immigration detainees, not as prisoners serving a sentence, but as immigration detainees awaiting deportation. Once they were approved for deportation, or as the U.S. government says, repatriation to Cuba, um, they were moved to Talladega. And so these men were awaiting a deportation flight. In in August, uh, late August of 1991, uh, three of these men were out in a recreation yard playing handball. And they were able to basically overtake a guard, take his keys, go back into the unit, very quickly kind of took it over and released the other 115 or so detainees. And that takeover lasted 10 days. And so what exactly were they protesting? That's a good question. It's sort of complicated because most directly, they did not want to be deported. They didn't want to go back to Cuba. Many of them feared persecution, they had left Cuba in the first place to come to the United States. All these men had come to the U.S. during the Mario boat lift in 1980 when 125,000 people came to the U.S. in a matter of months. It's like one of the largest uh, refugee uh, you know, mass migrations in the Western Hemisphere forever. You know, So they'd been in the country uh, at this point 11 years, and many of them had been detained for a lot of that time. So they were protesting – their conditions, the conditions of their confinement. Mm. 
And at what point did you realize that this isn't about detainees taking over a prison in Alabama? How did you know there was something larger going on here? It's a story that unless you, you know, are Cuban or Cuban American or you live in Miami, uh, it's it's not a story that's very well known. I think for a lot of Americans that this this mass migration event happened in 1980. The implications of this story of the boat lift and these detainees, we're still feeling today. We've come to think of the story as sort of the first chapter in our modern immigration detention system. At the time, in 1980, we detained very few people who came to this country as immigrants. Um, today, we detain tens of thousands, you know, um, and so this really is the, the root of it. We had somebody say to us, the law had existed for immigration detention for a long time. We just hadn't been doing it, and Morial was really the excuse for the U.S. government to begin doing it. The first season of White Lies focused on civil rights and how white people lie. How does that theme continue to play out in the second season? Neither Andy nor I is Cuban or has any Cuban, you know, no claims to Cuban identity. And so we're careful not to make characterizations about the different waves of Cuban immigrants over the years. But undeniably, the first wave of Cubans after the revolution was generally sort of considered white. They were a professional class. Um, many of them, once they got to this country, sort of identified as white. Meaning they had the the identity of a white person, but they were actually from Cuba. That's right. I mean, I think they once they came here, one, one Cuban-American said they sort of leaned into whiteness. You know, they were zoned for, for white schools and segregation academies in Miami. I mean, they, you know, they built an empire in South Florida. One Cuban-American said they sort of leaned into whiteness. You know, they were zoned for, for white schools and segregation academies in Miami. Black people call that passing. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did it extremely well. I mean, they, you know, they built an empire in South Florida. Um, Mariel, 20 years after the revolution happens, and Mariel is a much different group of Cubans, broadly speaking. It's 125,000 people, so, you, you know, the entire cross-section of the country came in Morial. But estimates have about a third of them as Afro-Cuban, or to use the racial categories of our country, black. And so what happened with this wave of, of Morial refugees was that very quickly the, the Morial boat lift, which we get into in depth in episode two, um, very quickly that went from being called the Freedom Flotilla, you know, and being celebrated and, oh, we're freeing these people from communist Cuba – to once white Americans saw images of single black men getting off of tr- overcrowded shrimp boats, it became something much darker. And, and the, the narrative about Marial changed like that. Is it safe to say that white people lied to not just other people, but to themselves to contend with their own racism? Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think for sure. I mean, I think that's what we explored in the first season that we explore it in a slightly different way in this season. Andy and I are both white, I should say, and that we have especially felt this way with season one, but I think it's true of season two. The things that white people say to each other when they're alone, I mean, we've had all sorts of people in this that we've interviewed for this season sort of talk about race in a way that felt, while we we're having a conversation, while we we're interviewing them, it felt immaterial to the conversation. But sometimes I think white people just can't resist the, the sort of like, well, you know what I'm talking about, you know. And so I think that's one of the things that benefits us as white reporters, frankly, to, telling these sorts of stories is that people confide in us in, in a way that feels uh, like they're 
that were cons- conspirators, like co-conspirators. What surprised you most in working on this season? I think the thing that surprised me was just decisions that were being made and seeing how those connect to today in a very real, tangible way, not just in a kind of philosophical or foundational way, but in a real, practical, policy-driven way. You just realize how, how, how brief that period of time is. Well, I'm excited for season two of White Lies. Thank you for your time, Chip. Enjoy it, Cody. Thank you. That was WBHM's Cody Short and Chip Brantley of White Lies. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.